Welcome to the Modernizer Die Podcast, CFML News Edition, where we keep you up to date with everything going on in the Cold Fusion community. We'll share the latest news on events, releases to engines, frameworks, libraries, and tools, as well as spotlighting quality content from the community. Welcome to the Modernizer Die Podcast, CFML News Edition. It's episode 98, and it's April 6, 2021. I'm Gavin Pickin, software consultant for Auto Solutions, and Brad Wood is joining me today. Congrats. Made it to the I list. I can't believe it's already April 6th. This means school's out in like a month, practically. This just almost that just happened. Yeah. Well, I don't know, more like three months for all those schools who started late. Oh yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. Um crazy. Moving along. Yep. Episode 98. That feels like it's really close to like a big round even number. Yep, 100 coming soon. We're we're trying to figure out what we're going to do, something a little different. So you'll have to tune in for that one to see what we do there. But today, first, we want to just thank our sponsors, Auto Solutions. Without them, we wouldn't be able to make this podcast. Um, so they're the creators of Coldbox, Commandbox, Forgebox, Testbox, and almost every other box out there, all the good ones anyway. Um, but a few ways... Everything but Fusebox, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And Box.com, the... Dropbox competitor, which Dropbox, I guess, too. But let's which not we ask. have no affiliation. Nope, we can't. Our lawyers require us to say it. No, I was kidding. Yeah. <laughs> we did get sued one time, right? Or cease and desist or something. I don't know. Something like that. Uh, we did not get sued, but <laughs> our our trademark for the Forgebox the name, which we do have trademarked, was challenged by the, the box.com um, place because they also offer cloud storage. Oh, um, which right. is why our forge box logo is one color and the box is not a different color. Unlike that's all right. of our other logos in which the word box is a different color. That was, that was the agreement. Yeah. You, you pay all that money for your lawyer just to come to some silly agreement and like, all right, we'll make the logo one color. All right. It works for us. Yeah. Like, thousands <laughs> down the drain. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, one way you can say thanks back to order solutions is you can like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. So uh, we're getting our numbers up there, trying to reach those uh, big round numbers, as Brad put it on YouTube as well. So if you could subscribe there, that'd be a big help. Also, uh, we have CFCast, which is our online video um, platform. So we have free and paid content there. And if you subscribe there, you're helping us out. And also we have a new book out on uh, Gumrobe, which is 102 Cold Box HMVC Quick Tips and Tricks. Um, Luis wrote that with a lot of support from other Autis team members, lots of great tips. And so there's a few ways you can give back and say thanks to Autis for doing all they do in the community, and the podcast is one of them. Okay. The other way um, that this podcast is possible is due to our Patreon supporters. We've got over over 30 supporters now contributing almost 80% of this podcast funding. So uh, you guys are doing a great job. And we'll tell you a little more about the Patreon supporters at the end of the show. Okay, so first up for news and events. Uh, looks like we've got another beta product out there ready for testing. So the Coldbox Debugger version 3.0 is in beta right now. So we're looking for some people to, to help test that. Um, if you haven't seen it, the last uh, update, I think it was 2.3, was released almost a year ago. But Luis has been working hard the last few weeks. There's a ton of commits in there. Uh, and so basically, this major version is almost ready to be released. We just uh, we have it in beta, so we can get some testing for it. It has um, better ORM debugging, improved Docker debugging, improved cache debugging tons and tons of ui if you look at the commits it's like ui 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 
lots of UI improvements everywhere. Uh, it's even got things like improving the reporting for Java versions, etc. If you're using Lucy, so, it ties into Lucy IDs and everything. So I saw Luis's uh, notes about this release, but I haven't had a chance to test it. I see that he bumped from 2.3 up to 3.0. Do you know if he has documented what any of the breaking changes are or if there are any breaking changes? No, I'm not sure yet. I was looking through the commits just to see an idea of what's, you know, sort of gone on there. Um, you know, just debuggers, debug, uh, disabled in test box, lots of UI, Lucy ID tracking, Docker visualization. So I haven't seen what would be the breaking change. I don't know if it's just because he's spent weeks and weeks on it and it's like a ton of new stuff and he's redesigned the whole thing. If that's the reason for something specific. So I said I did look. There's a couple pages of commits here. So it goes back. Right, I'm going to have to wait until he writes uh, his release notes for it. Yeah. But I know Luis wants people to test it. So, yep. And like I said, lots of great stuff in there. Um, I know that uh, Eric's been doing work with QB and Quick in there. And so uh, Luis has also done some work on cleaning uh, all of that stuff up, including that. So lots of good stuff in there. Again, if you can get time to test it, that would be great it's before we cut the final release for that. So you can get that on Forgebox, and we've got the link to the GitHub repo, so you can use that if you'd like. So we'll post that in the chat right now. And uh, yeah, let us know if you got any feedback. Um, so lots of big improvements there. So next up, we have some information about Adobe's web webinar series. So they have a seven part webinar series on API creation and management. Um, so we had a couple in 324 and 325. Uh, we have a couple more coming up in April, so the 28th and the 29th of April. So we have information on the whole series as well as registration links. And Adobe uh, usually gives you the recordings if you sign up for the series. So if you haven't signed up or registered, go register now, and you might be able to get access to those ones that have previously been, been put out there. But uh, a lot of different API-related things. So some of them are doing, you know, about the API monitor and the server uh, API management tools. But there's also things, you know, security and, and just even hands-on examples. So it looks like a pretty great series if you're looking for some API stuff. You said API creation and management. Well, I mean, you said it. It's the name of the post here. The yep. scrolling down, all of them say Cold Fusion API Manager, Cold Fusion API Manager, Cold Fusion API Manager. Are they actually creating, like, creating an API, or is this all just the API Manager stuff? I thought they were meant to have different sessions. Last time I looked, the names were different, but maybe they're changing it, or maybe they're just got the same title. But I did look at some hmm. of the descriptions, and they looks like they were doing different things, too. So, I mean, they got seven, seven in the series. That's a lot of that's a lot of talk about one topic. So I'm pretty sure that there is some differences there. I Brian Sappy did the first couple. The first one does say introduction to Cold Fusion API Manager and Cold Fusion RESTful Web Services. Yeah, it's a but, shame it isn't Cold Box REST. Yeah, <laughs> and I need to. We should come up with our own competing version. I mean, not, not that we uh, uh, duplicate the broad scale and functionality of what the API manager does. But as, far, as far as the actual like API itself, we should have our own version that's like the modern way, full box rest. Yep. And uh, I did and do they're gonna a, be like unicorns. 
that are part of it. Yeah, I did do an API talk for the CF online CF meetup, and I have to go back and do the cold box version, and I haven't done that yet. It's been kind of crazy the last few months, and I haven't had time to do that. But yeah, Gavin, of, where's the cold box version? Yeah, it's it's <laughs> on my to do list, and it's not been to done yet. But uh, speaking of online done. CF meetup, we have uh, <laughs> two coming up from the online CF meetup with Charlie. Uh, so he has a CSS crash course for CSS haters or novices with Jessica Keener. And then uh, after that, that one is April 8th. And then the following week, April 15th, Luis Mahano is doing To the Future with CB Futures. So a lot of the asynchronous cold box goodies that Coldbox 6 has uh, is going to be talking about that one in that meetup. So that one's going to be Thursday, April 15th. So we've got a couple of good online meetups coming up here. And then Luis wants to do more talks, I guess, because uh, the next week he's doing an Audis webinar on building modern web apps with ContentBox Modular CMS. And so he's been working hard on ContentBox 5. And so he's going to be doing a whole webinar about how to build ContentBox apps. So that one looks uh, like it should be fun. And he's going to actually tie into the Powerless Headless API. That's one of the big things we're doing in ContentBox 5 as well. So that webinar will be April 23rd. Um, so looks like we've got lots of good content. So April 8th, 15th, 23rd, 28th, 29th. So you got plenty of webinars. Maybe you'll get some work done too, but a lot of good content this month. And then... Uh, Charlie's in the chat saying we should have a battle of the APIs. You have all the different REST options and CF, Coldbox, and Tappy. Yep. I told them it sounded pretty fun. We could actually have like a basic API spec that if people write, um, you know, implement that API and like to stock ColdFusion built-in REST, Taffy, Coldbox REST, and then, you know, try to attack like the development effort, the features, how much code each one takes. That would actually be really interesting to see. Yep. I know uh, Adam Topple uh, is redoing his book, cleaning it up a little bit and releasing it, uh, re-releasing it. Oh, that. his uh, REST book? Yeah, I saw some tweets about it. He was going through it. He says, man, I've learned a lot since I've released this book. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he did a, a talk on the online CF meetup, I think last year, about doing a, a Taffy version of the API because APIs are still pretty big. Everyone's wanting to learn more about them. So um, it was good. But all I know is that most, most of the engine implementations i think they're restricted unless you go to the enterprise for the number or like if you have a rest endpoint on one site it appears on every site under that manager you know under the cold fusion instance so are you talking about adobe's api manager yeah well not that but the actual rest you know the like if you want api slash v1 if you implement it at the engine level that's like a, like a basically a, an alias on all your sites that are using the engine there's some weird stuff like that that comes into play um so that's why I like it just being in the code. Um, but I might be a little biased writing a whole yeah. bunch of it in Coldbox. So. See Scott Steinbeck's throwing down. He's putting requirements out. Authentication, automatic headers, cores, sentry logging. Does he, I think he knows those are all drop-in Coldbox modules. <laughs> Done. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> we added all those to our Coldbox API. <laughs> yep. So that's uh, definitely pretty easy with all the modules we have with Coldbox now. Because if it doesn't exist, we make it. So... True. I think half the modules that Ordis has put on ForgeBox is because we had a client project that needed it and we built it and we're like, well, another module. Yeah, that, that way they're battle tested too, right? So, yeah, we try and, uh, I mean, we anyway, obviously want to make our lives easier, but yeah. Activist show notes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the White Cold Box's Amazing Hour. 
where we pretend to talk about the news. We we occasionally interrupt you with the news while talking about cold bucks. Yep. Speaking of cold bucks, uh, <laughs> Luis we? has a new book. Oh, how appropriate. <laughs> 102 cold bucks, HMVC quick tips and tricks. And there's uh, probably a few of them in there talking about all the modules we use. Um, Available on Gumroad. I have never heard of this website. Really? Gumroad.com. Yeah, it's an easy self-publisher. Um, tool. Nice. A lot of all those indie companies, startup sort of places that write books and do-it-yourself stuff. Use it. You know, Wikipedia does not consider self-published books to be uh, reliable sources for articles. Oh, well. Just random little thought. Yeah. Well, publishing is changing a lot, that's for sure. Oh, so yeah. Will says uh, CB Swagger could use some improvement in docs. Huh. I'm really liking the the CB Swagger stuff. We're tying into a lot of other modules in uh, CI to, um, to, to work with our Swagger, Swagger Flow. Maybe we'll have to add that into the, the flow when we do modern stuff because the documentation piece is a, a big step and a big help. So we'll have to mention that too, Will. So I'll, I'll let you know, Will, when we do those uh, sessions for sure. Yeah. Uh, Charlie had a great uh, comment here in the chat, which is that the API manager um, product that Adobe has can be put in front of any backend API. Um, whether it's a Taffy API or a Coldbox API, or even a, from my understanding, a Node API, I believe the ColdFusion Adobe uh, API Manager product can be set in front of any backend API. Um, anyway, just a, a quick note for anyone thinking about those Adobe webinars. Yeah, I don't think it matters what your backend technology is written in. Yep, for sure. And that's the other thing too is a, a lot of times if you have an app. You know, building an API, you can sort of build it, you know, with whatever you need. You don't have to convert the whole app to something like Holbox or Taffy. You can just have the API piece running you that framework. the whole app, though. <laughs> I'll let Brad get off his soapbox in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm permanently affixed to my soapbox. Yep, so that's our news for today, but let's talk about CFCast. So we have some more of your command box zero to hero videos coming out, Brad, for CFCast. So what were the last two about? Um, according to the show notes, they're about command box servers and uh, specifying your CF engine when you start a server. Yep. So we've got, I think, 26 videos out now in that series so far. So Brad does talk for days. So uh, there's probably still a little more content coming next week. <laughs> but we have um, Up and Running with Quick coming very soon and using DocBox coming soon as well. So I know they're working on those series. So we'll have more content for those who want something other than command box but there's a lot of great content on there if you go to cfcast.com and click browse you can see what the most recent content added was and as we mentioned last week if you don't see the spanish content you're wanting to see that make sure you're the right flag is checked at the top of the page so you see the the content in the language of your choice okay so next up we have some conferences and training so April 14th, the ViewConf, it's getting pretty close here. So that one's actually hosted by Evan New, the creator of Vue.js. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of uh, great content, great speakers. They have workshops as well, so you can actually sign up for those now. Um, live DJ, virtual party, um, attendee lightning talk. So a lot of good stuff going there. Um, it's kind of nice having all these online ones because there's so many conferences I wouldn't be able to get to if I was having to fly around the country. So, <laughs> so all the uh, all the options that have been opened up to you. Yeah, I finally actually was going to go to a real view conf and then it all went virtual with COVID. So I guess I'll have to wait for things to open back up for an in-person one. 
And then, so that one is April 14th. And then the next week after that, we have RedisConf. So April 20th and 21st. So Brad, are you going to be ready for this $100,000 hackathon that Redis is doing? I forgot about it since last week. Uh, well, we, we still need to think up some really clever things we can build with it. Yep. So you guys in the chat, let us know what we should do for this $100,000 hackathon that involves Redis. Why do we uh, have to be the people to do it? Well, I mean, as a community, let's try and get a little team to do a hackathon and, you know, put some, put Cold Fusion on the map there. So uh, there's a lot of good content as well, other than the hackathon, but uh, that's what everyone's been talking about with RedisConf. So that's two days, virtual, free, uh, a lot of good information. And you can sign up for that at redislabs.com slash RedisConf. Yeah, I don't doubt the tools that we have. Um to build something cool. We just need a, an idea, a cool idea to build something for the hackathon. Yeah, that's we need to chat. I'm bad at also. coming up with ideas from like nothing. My ideas are always, you know, mothered by necessity, right? I need something and then I have the idea. It's hard yep. for me just to like pull an idea out of the ether. Yep. We need yep. a visionary. Is exactly. there a visionary out there? Vision Some, us. Someone in chat should have a good idea for us. <laughs> Okay. We also have uh, Atlassian Teams 21. So um, being remote, te working with your team, better teammates is uh, even more important with uh, you know the remote necessity. So Atlassian Teams 21 is on April 28th to 30th, and they have a lot of a lot of sessions around building your team, making your team better, more efficiency, communication, etc. And you can find that at events.atlassian.com/team21. And then. We have AWS Summit Online Americas too. So, man, it's just conference Americas. after conference. Yep. So, May 12th and 13th, online and free. And uh, it's a lot of good content that AWS puts out every year. And I think this would be good for a lot of people wanting to maybe dip their toes in the AWS. Uh, the summits are basically a, a real intro level. Um, you know, they sort of show you a bit of everything. So a lot of people wanting to, to you know, try AWS out, this would be a good conference for you. Um, a lot of people are starting to run Cold Fusion servers on like Fargate servers and things like that instead of just having to do your own EC2. Um, but with a number of moving pieces in AWS, you definitely need to, you know, a attend a few of, of these sessions to figure AWS. out how they all fit together. In fact, AWS is nothing but moving pieces stacked on top of each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's Very built sure. entirely with little Lego gears that are all moving and just don't step on them. Yeah. We got lots of options. That's for sure. You know, but with great flexibility comes great complexity. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, if you're wanting to dip your toes, the CF summit is May 12th and 13th it's online and free. Um, it's really good, and if you get an in-person opportunity at some point in the future, there's tons of great swag there, right, Scott? Me and Scott attended one before, and we had bags and bags of swag, so we definitely made our swag limit. Binders of swag. Yep, and then May 27th, we have DockerCon, so it's a free one-day virtual event, a lot of good content there. Um, DockerCon's always great. And there's always stuff where uh, it's all the way from beginner stuff to ninja experts. And, you know, if you want to spend two hours learning how to configure a, you know, a storage driver, they can show you that, but they can also show you really quickly how to get a swarm up and running or why Kubernetes is terrible. They'll have all of that. <laughs> Sorry, we're team swarm over here. We don't like Kubernetes. <laughs> 
And then uh, Otis Workshops. So, Brad, do you have any idea when your next Command Box Zero to Hero Workshops coming up? I know we're having dates. I literally soon. know nothing about it. Our marketing department has came up with the idea that we'll be doing one, and no one's asked me about it. So, I figure at some point someone will approach me from the Nordis and say, "Hey, can you do it on this date?" And I'll be like, "Okay." And so that's that's all I know. Okay. So yeah, we. Have- I'm not sure what the schedules are. I really have no idea. Yeah, so, so we're we're planning on doing a command box zero to hero, a call box zero to hero, and a call box hero to superhero coming soon. Um, and again, dates coming when we know them, we'll let you know. Uh, but if you have a request, um, you know that can help jumpstart that that training. So if you guys are looking for training on call box or command box, or even quick, we did one earlier in the year. Uh, let us know, and we'll see if we can get that moved up the schedule. And then we have some conferences coming from Audis as well. So we have a developer week style into the box coming in September. And we'll have the call for speakers soon. And then into the box Latam, which will be in December. So a lot of good content coming. Can't believe we got one, two, three, three in three in April, two in May, and then we got, you know, some later in the year. So Obviously, if you want more conferences, you can't get enough here. Comps.tech has a lot of great conferences listed. And uh, there's pretty much something for everybody there. So comps.tech. Okay. So, Brad, now it's time of the week where we talk about blogs and tweets and videos. And we get your your opinions on all this great blog content. So, first up, we have Ben Nadal. And he's talking about an interesting thing, which is rethinking error type schemas and naming conventions in this called Fusion app. So this one, I, I like this one actually, because he talked a little bit about, um, you know, throwing errors and how to manage them. And some people, you know, like different error codes for every different error they throw. Uh, maybe they have code. And he even mentioned here, it'd be nice to know what line it came from just by looking at the error message or, you know, a lot of the application errors that they throw are all very generic. And so he kind of looked at a convention, which I'll scroll down for those watching, where <laughs> they prefix everything with Envision app so they know that they're throwing a custom error. And then they sort of have, you know, dot notation to sort of break up the error code. So they may have an Envision app dot validation dot invalid field or Envision app dot forbidden dot overquoted dot max project member count. So you sort of try to figure out different ways to, uh, you know, set this up and, you know, sort of, you know, a way to envision error, So, you know, the errors were much easier to debug because context is sort of everything when you're trying to figure that out. So have you ever um, come yeah, up with something like this? What's nice is when you use a service like Sentry, um, and you can pass through those error types, but also allows you to get some reporting on it as well, where you can, you know, filter type uh, errors of certain types. I had, did, I had did you do partials of that though? I was curious about that. You know, if you could just say, okay, you know, the first piece is Envision app. If you did a report, could you just do their in Century? Yeah, like how I does it break you, it down? I'm pretty certain you can. I mean, you can report on the the, the type of the error. I think. Yeah, but that's because it's Envision app dot, and then it could be you know a prototype. I don't think dot. Century has any particular conventions about the error type, but yeah, I, I need just, to confirm. I just thought um, it'd be kind of neat if we could if there was something out there that already had some conventions we could tie into because i like the idea you know instead of just having like an entity not found you know you can actually have okay well what's not found is it a user not found or is it a project not found and so by making your you know your entity error 
be a little more detailed, you could you could see that pretty easily. But then if you could filter by that, I thought it'd be kind of interesting. Let me see what Sentry has. Um, ugh, so much chunk in here. Yeah. And the other thing um, talked about is, you know, commands versus queries too. You know, and obviously if you're asking, you know, asking to do something versus asking to read something, there could be different types of errors. And, and so it was an interesting read. You know, I liked it. It got me thinking. You know, I can't actually find a thing called type in Sentry. I'd have to look at the, the, the Sentry implementation and see what fields are passed. And if we pass the type into something, I'm pretty certain we do. Um, but I can always be wrong. All right. Brad um, admitted it. He can be wrong. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm looking through the actual Sentry module right now. Yep. Here we go. Sentry.interfaces.exception. There is a type, and it is the... Well, that's right, because it's the type concatenated with the word error, which I think I've always found a little bit annoying. <laughs> um, but I think that winds up... I'm trying to figure out in Sentry where it shows up. Of course, the Sentry was just kind of a, a sidetrack, not that there's all sorts of ways you might log it, but... Yeah. Um, so I talked with Ben a little bit in the comments and as well on Twitter about that particular blog post. Um, Mingo Hagen and chimed in. Um, the So Coldbox does something similar to what Ben was talking about. Um, though I was actually surprised. I was thinking Luis did more of it, but it, Luis doesn't always do it. Um, if you look at like the, the SES service or the routing service or whatever in, in Coldbox, it has different exceptions it throws for different types of error scenarios. And in that instance, they all start with SES dot. So it's you no know, SES dot invalid route, SES dot, you know, missing query string. I don't know, I'm making these up. I forget what the real ones were. Invalid um, namespace exception include route. Uh, yeah, yeah, so. there you go. You found my comment. Um, and so what I actually, I didn't even realize both engines supported this. I hadn't tried it in a long time. Um, if, you, if you throw an error with a type that has dots in it, um, you can catch just the first part of it. So yeah, you see the code block on the screen. I have throw type equals SES dot invalid namespace exception. And you can wrap that in a try catch and you can catch just SES. And it'll Ooh. catch any error type that starts with SES dot anything. Um, so if you wanted to catch any errors of a certain, you know, subtype, if you will, you can do that. In, in other languages like Java, exceptions are implemented as a particular class. And so you have to use inheritance um, to be able to, you know, catch a sort of like, you know, super type class, such as you have an IO exception and you can catch that. But in Java, you might have a, a subclass that is a, a Brad IO exception. Um, you know, in ColdFusion types are just strings, but it is interesting to note that those periods in a type will allow you to capture just the first part of it. Oh, um, I never knew that. That's cool. I don't tend to throw a lot of exceptions in my code in a lot of places, or at least I don't, I don't tend to try catch exceptions, at least not on an individual basis. Like you'll rarely see me use a try catch in, in a handler or in a model, at least not in cold fusion, maybe in Java, cause you have to deal with, with uh, typed exceptions and all that nonsense. Um, but I do like it, for instance, in command box. Um, and I use types there to be able to differentiate between a sort of expected exception or an exception that I, kind of know why it happened or I want to deal with it differently um, as opposed to just uh, well, what in Java would be like a, a, um, 
a runtime exception, right? Just like, oh crap, that was weird. Something went like really south and I don't know what happened. So in, in, in command box, if I throw an, if, uh, an exception that has a type of command exception, you'll get like kind of a prettier handling of it where I don't dump out the whole stack trace and puke it all to the user. I just just print the message and that's it. But if it's no another type, then I'll be like, ah, crap, I don't know what that one means. And I dump the whole stack trace and everything. Um, and I actually, like there's types like forge box exceptions, you know, that might happen. So there's definitely nice places for, and I, I like Ben's thought about it, which is that it makes sense to put at least a little bit of thought into it. That way, if you want to catch exceptions of a certain type or just, you know, report on them, you can have some consistency with how your application works. Um, anyway, and also yeah. uh, Eric Peterson also chimed in on Twitter. Um, there's a couple other annoying things. Um, for instance, if you want to attach additional information to an exception, which that happens a lot in like Wirebox, right? And, you know, we're trying to create a CFC and it blows up and we don't want to just throw that raw error. We kind of want to like capture it and rethrow it with some additional information on top of it, such as this is what we were trying to create. This is the target that dependency was being created for. This is the context around what we were trying to do. And in Java, you can have a caused by, you know, where an exception could have a nest exception inside of it. And I've put in tickets for Adobe and Lucy like four or five years ago, and they're just rotting in their backlogs. Neither CF Engine, neither vendor is interested in implementing that um, that feature. So the only way you can kind of like stash information into an existing error message is to throw it in extended info, which in Confusion has to be a string for some <laughs> terribly unknown reason. Somebody hates us as Confusion developers, so your extra info can't be like a, a you know structure, structure an array. Yeah. That would make um, so much yeah. sense. Yeah, and so Eric was saying, because that, that's one of the great benefits of having a, a custom exception type in, say, Java, is you can, you know, subclass an existing exception class, add your own, you know, methods and properties onto it to capture additional information. We can't do that in ColdFusion, and it kind of sucks. So you wind up having to, like, cram, like, JSON or something as a string into your extended info by convention and then parse it back out. Um, it works, but it just really feels like the exception handling in ColdFusion could really stand it get a bit of love, you know, from yeah. the, the, the vendors. But anyway, it would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Ben's Ben's post brought apparently triggered lots of things <laughs> and people, including me, but like, and another thing I hate about cold fusions, exception handling. <laughs> yep. For sure. But yeah. I definitely like the way it, you can bubble up and you know, that's definitely a good thing. I didn't know about the dot notation. I'm going to have to start using that for sure. Cause uh, that will make life a lot easier. So, yeah, cool, cool. Well, next up, we have a blog post from Charlie Earhart. And so, confirming ColdFusion's Java version vol CF, CFML code. And so, you know, I didn't read his post, but as soon as I saw it, I was like, that's handy. And I totally run into this with clients or people on, you know, the mailing list. Or I'm even like, what version box. of Java? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what version of Java is your server using? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, we had to do that uh, last week when we were debugging something. We couldn't figure out which version of Java might be running, and we were jumping in this and that. And possibly, and I mean, command box almost makes it a little bit harder because there's so many um, little knobs and dials you can turn to ask command box to use certain versions. That when a user comes and asks for help, I don't know which of those settings they may or may not have enabled. Um, and uh, yeah, and you can get it from the um, from the administrator, like Charlie pointed out. But a lot of times, you don't always have access to that, so. Yep. This is uh this is useful for if you're like, what version of Java is my server actually on? Yeah. And then you can Yeah, or as Charlie says in the chat, they might think it's on a certain version, but they're mistaken. Yeah, I mean that's definitely true as well. Um it's nice to be able to give someone some instructions that will one hundred percent certain 
say this is the version of Java you're on. Yep. So CF twenty eighteen and above, it's in the server.system.properties.java home and Java version. And then Lucy mm-hmm. has um server system properties, java.version and java.home. And in twenty sixteen and earlier, Java has its own system.get profit property methods. And so Charlie's got all the examples out here. I hadn't noticed that before. The difference between Adobe I knew that Adobe did the the server system property stuff. Does Adobe break out those dot limited things to actually be nested structs? Looks like it, doesn't it? Because Lucy treats the singular Java system property name Java dot version as a singular struct key. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm, hmm. uh, what I'm trying to debate is whether Adobe actually stores it as a nested struct called Java, or if that's just an artifact of Adobe's vaguely ambiguous um, struct key resolution, which I know Lucy doesn't perfectly match on purpose because Misha doesn't always like how Adobe did it. Interesting. And Charlie said, yes, Brad. <laughs> and Lucy does not. So that's interesting. Interesting. I, a little random factoid. Um, there are there are places in Adobe ColdFusion where you'll get different behavior based on whether you use dot notation or bracket notation for structs. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a on purpose, they have no intentions of changing the incompatibility in Lucy. You will always always get the same behavior when you dereference a struct, regardless of whether you use dots or brackets. And that's very much on purpose. Misha hated that behavior in Adobe and he refused to implement it in Lucy. So occasionally you'll run into some edge cases where they, they treat them differently. And it's one of those on purpose things. <laughs> yeah. There's a few of them like that, but usually there's a good reason for it. Usually. Usually. Yeah. Usually it's backwards compatibility. Yeah. So we have a, another blog post from Ben and Al, and this one was a pretty good one too. So this was a peek into interstitial costs of microservices. So I know this one caught your attention. So this was basically, you know, Ben is going through merging microservices back into his monolith. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they microserved everything out and then they decided to bring it back to a monolith. And um, so he's basically, you know, reconsuming this Go microservice. And he said the interesting part of it, which was pretty interesting, well, pretty cool, was that they, they had the Go service, they had to rewrite it and implement it in ColdFusion. And then he looked at the performance difference between them. And so he has a stats D histogram um, timing feature. And so this is all based on your average 95th percentile. So, um, you know, it's basically just taking, you know, looking at the, the high end, um, 95%, I think is what, two, three standard deviations worth of stuff. And basically you can see when they implemented it and the drop off is quite, quite impressive. So the, everything was taking, you know, approximately 120 milliseconds previously, and then it dropped down to 40 milliseconds. And so they had to do the math on actually how much time ColdFusion was using versus how much Go was actually using. And so they he figured out, long story short, is that there was a, a difference basically of about 70 milliseconds, which was unaccounted for, which has to be due to latency. So basically it was taking 120 milliseconds. Well, it doesn't have to be latency, but it is well, overhead in the HTTP call. So, yeah, so that's basically well, the cost of the let me, put, let me put it this way. It doesn't have to be networking latency, which is typically what I think of when you say latency. Yeah. I'm still stuck on the word on the title of his post, interstitial. All right, here's the Merriam-Webster pronunciation. Interstitial. 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 Occurring in or being an interval of intervening space or segment. That literally means nothing to me. Yep, and he quoted you what here too. What does that too. mean? It means the timing between. That's pretty. I, that's a new word for me. 
I, I saw his post and I talked to him about it, but I'd completely missed that word pertaining to being in between things. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, there's and there's a couple reasons I had talked with Ben about why there can be overhead in an HTTP call. And I don't remember if we talked about it in the podcast or not, but I just dealt with a client on Lucy a few weeks back um, that in a similar fashion to what Ben's doing, they had a Lucy-based ColdFusion app and they had moved all of their business logic into this node web service. Sorry, I just get that gag reflex when I say node. <laughs> this JavaScript-based node web service that was, you know, facing interfacing with MongoDB and did all the caching. Um, but you know, every hit to their web page would be like 10 to 15 HTTP calls to these back-end, you know, node web services to get all this JSON data. Um, and they were getting a, an incredible amount of just overhead of just making all these HTTP calls. Um, I, I I did point out to them, you know, that Lucy can just connect directly to Mongo, right? Just skip that node stuff. But unfortunately, this was a, a design decision they weren't planning on leaving. Um, uh, and so there was a ticket I put in for Lucy um, regarding the uh, class loading overhead that appears to come from OSGI. And of course, the particular client I'm thinking of was originally on Lucy 5.2.9, which is quite old. And the, the class loading overhead for some reason was significantly slower on the older version. So part half of their fix was just moving to the current version of Lucy. Um, and that class loading got faster, but it's still measurably slow. And as far as I know, the ticket I put in is still sitting in the Lucy backlog. Um, I had actually worked with them and somewhere, I don't know where I told Ben this because I don't know if it was on Twitter or if it was on Slack or on Discourse or what. Um, he had asked about bypassing um, that. I'd actually worked with that particular client of ours to create um, just a, a raw little bit of Java code that would you know create a connection for you and download it that, of course, is missing a lot of features that CFHTP gives you. But it was about twice as fast, just with you know the, just the pure overhead um, as CFHTTP, um, and that got their times down even farther. But one of the other things that chaps my hide is Lucy in 2021 still does not actually support connection pooling um, for subsequent HTTP requests. So like every other modern like application in the face of planet Earth, including Adobe Cold Fusion, you make a CFHTP call to the same endpoint 10 times in a row. The first time you resolve your DNS, you establish the TCP connection, possibly, you know, an SSL layer, and then you, you know, send a received HTTP call and you keep that connection open and you just reuse it for all the subsequent ones. Nope, not Lucy. Um, this has really pissed me off because th there was a ticket that Luis put in like six years ago asking Lu uh, Lucy to do connection pooling and the ticket was closed and some code was added and it did not actually work. And I put in another ticket years ago saying, hey, this doesn't work. And there's been a pull request sitting in Lucy's repo for like two or three years with the fix for Lucy's connection pooling unmerged. So yeah, um, <clears throat> things that pissoffbrad.com. Uh, so that that's another thing. So every time Lucy makes an HTTP call, you had that, that uh, you know, initialization of the TCP layer, which is, you know, it might only be a few milliseconds, but you do it 10 or 15 times with the course of requests and you do it under load. Yeah. I mean, that stuff adds up. So um, all that's to say, I don't know what parts of that may or may not have been uh, attributing to um, to Ben's overhead with those CFHTP calls. Um, but all of those have the potential to. And of course, 
for Ben, the answer was just to eliminate <laughs> this CFHTP call to the backend Go service entirely and just put that functionality right, functionality right there in, in Cold Fusion, which yeah. um, obviously worked very well for him. But yeah, this very interesting range of, uh, of factors that that potentially can address this. And unfortunately, it's not all of it is, is you know, infrastructure based, like, you know, oh, well, this is the reason why microservices are a bad idea. Unfortunately, a couple of these are, in my opinion, just bad bugs in Lucy related to slow class loading, related to lack of connection pooling. And Lucy could probably make it quite a bit better if they would put some development effort into that. Now, on that note, I have yelled at Zach, um, and he is uh, working on getting that connection pooling thing pushed through. Because um, I think that probably stands to add some performance boost to, to any Lucy website. And kudos to Adobe for having working connection pooling for years and years, as far as I know, um, on their CFHTP tag. It really just makes sense for that to happen. Yeah. I mean, and as Ben sums up in that blog post, you know, it's a design decision, you know, take your architecture and your networking and everything into account. You know, if it's a small little microservice that what doesn't hurt, you know, there's not, you know, maybe there's not a many to many relationship with the numbers of calls, then maybe moving to ColdFusion makes sense. But if it's called so much that, you know, ColdFusion doing the same processing might overwhelm servers, then maybe a microservice is worth it. So you really have to weigh it up and figure out, is it worth to, to jump into that or not? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a good point. You know, Every you, time you reach out to another server, you know, that that's a little bit of overhead and you can say the same thing for cache servers. So Couchbase or Redis, you know, all that it's some layer is, you know, a CFHTP or at least minimally a TCP connection, you know, so every time yeah. you hit a cache server, um, you have that bit of overhead. And yeah. then, we actually saw that just recently in, in the Cobalt <laughs> update. You we know, which we, we were... did, yeah. We had some some cache calls in Coldbox that, based on how your app was written, could happen like thousands of times a second. And for an in-memory cache, it was like no big, who cares? And and we in this particular client app, we had it pointed to a couch-based server, and suddenly thousands of you know requests over the network to a couch-based server was you know just a massive amount of yeah, it was a massive amount of network overhead, and we were like, "Oh yeah, that that there's limitations when you when you scale as soon as you reach out over the the network." Yeah. Um, and so I'd, I'd say that falls in the same category as microservice considerations, you know. Yep, exactly. And as usual, testing under load will bring a lot more to your attention than just one little <laughs> dev server, you know, playing around. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that particular client tested under production load. Yeah, and we actually simulated test, load. Yeah, and we tested it, and everything worked good, looked good, and it looked on good the for staging a while. server with three users. It worked fine. Yeah. Uh, but it was just one of those things where you know, eventually it just stacked up and yeah. And obviously the fix had best intentions in mind and we just like, well, we don't actually need to cache that between instances. This is something that is on a per node basis and Docker is fine. So we just put it in memory and voila, problem solved. <laughs> but yeah, interesting for sure. Okay. So let's, Ben's got another blog post here and this one's uh Another one is make you think as well. I like those things. I regret it says. Yeah. Returning modified data in the API response payload. And so I didn't read this one of his. What is it? What is this one about? So this one's about like when you basically you're renaming a contact, for example, a lot of times APIs will give you back uh, a full entity if you do an update. 
you know? Oh, okay. So you're like, here's the update for the entity and the API is like, okay, I'm giving it all back to you. So you can, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so stuff like that. And so basically he said he used to do that. And then of course they had added more and more, you know, things to the user and, you know, basically over time in the end, it got to the point where, you know, I didn't actually want all that crap back. I didn't need all that stuff back. I just needed like, yep, it's updated. And so, you know, basically yeah, command query responsibility. Yeah. And this is what I thought was interesting. I never heard this before, but command query responsibility segregation, CQRS. I thought it was cool. It was the first time I saw it. I wish, oh. you know, that, that just ain't <laughs> yeah, shot through my spine squinting. anyway. In your head. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious if, uh, if what bothered him was more the overhead of just the, you know, bytes going back across the network, or if it was the, uh, the cost of looking up that data, well, that was the thing. I mean, it basically is when they first did it, you know, people assumed like, oh, we're just updating into them. We get that back. But as you come out on more use cases and stuff, then maybe something like here, they talked about how it, normally you want the avatar URL returned or whatever. But if someone who's, you know, maybe importing a bunch of users, they don't need that, you know, so it's basically doing unneeded work. And if they needed it, they could probably just make that call. And well, what I really like... Same- yeah. Sorry, finish your sentence. I was going to say, the interesting thing I see here is like, he talks about people being sloppy and lazy and irrational, and uh, he just wanted to make sure everyone understood that most of the time he's pointing at himself when he does this stuff, because it's <laughs> most of the code he's been working on for years and years and years. I, so, mean, I, don't, but, see, I don't consider it being sloppy or lazy. I think you do it because you're trying to be clever and make it useful. I gotta say, we run into the same problem in the CFML language. There's features of a language that are very easy to use. Um, an example is getting information about file, like directory listings, right? If you wanted to get a directory listing in Java, it would take a lot more individual calls to get the, the file permissions, the, you know, the path info, all the different you know, hidden flags. Those are all like separate individual calls. And you have a, a function like CF directory, super easy to use, but it has a lot of overhead under load because it pulls all those different things about all the different files and folders you're pulling back. And you always say, well, what if I didn't need any of that information? Well, it doesn't matter. You're stuck with it. You know, this this convenient function called Fusion just always gathers all of these things, whether or not <clears throat> you want them. Same as CFHTP, right? If you didn't, if you want to hit a, a URL in Java and you don't care about the headers that come back, you don't have to touch the headers. You don't have to get the headers. You don't have to loop over the headers. You don't have to parse the headers. You just ignore them. You use CFHTP, guess what? You get, touch, parse, hug, lick, the letters, the, you know, the headers every time, whether or not you actually use them in your code. Um, and while it's handy, sometimes you, you kind of think, well, you know, technically, I guess we could have made a more, you know, streamlined version of this that didn't do everything. And so, I mean, I can see this being in the same boat. It's super handy. You know, you get the data back. Oh, look, how convenient. But then you wind up in a position down the road where you're like, oh, well, that's actually quite a bit of data that we put together. And it turns out we don't use it 70% of the time. And then you kind of, wish you hadn't <laughs> like like ben ended up in yeah and that's what he's saying like you know at first it's a convenience thing it saves an extra call mm-hmm. or whatever but you know if more and more people keep using this and just keeps adding it and adding it and then all of a sudden you're getting back tons of data that you may not need in most cases and so you know it's not just that it's more data over the network but it's more processing time on the server you know stuff like that and so basically, he says, if you're updating something, if you're doing command, the command should just say, okay, yes, I'm done. And then give you maybe an ID if you need it back, just whatever you need. And then, you know, they can make another query if they need it. And, you know, basically, otherwise you're cross-contaminating, as he puts it, you know. 
And so I think there's a happy medium. I don't think it should be an either end, but I think it's, I think he definitely has a good point there. Um, yeah. I think that I, we've even gotten some of similar things. And this is probably where like the GraphQL kind of ideas come in, like in the Forgebox API, you know, we have like some basic endpoints that just give you everything about an entry. And sometimes I want like one property from an entry, but that entry has like 500 versions. And I'm not, that's not hyperbole. We have some packages in Forgebox with, with hundreds and hundreds of versions, you know, and I have a JSON response that's like a megabyte of crap that comes back and all I want is one little property. Um, you know, and, and you either need to have individual endpoints or some sort of filtering criteria whereby, you know, you can tell the remote server, hey, don't give me the whole thing. All I need is this one part, which of course would be even more complicated in in Ben's example, since the data coming back was just kind of an automatic functionality, you know, tacked on to the end of the update. Yeah, Scott's saying yeah. you should use that JMES path stuff in your API. You know what? I, I should have sent some tweets about the JMES stuff that, that Scott's been working on. Um, that way we could actually cover it in the podcast. Um, yeah. if, if any, here's a little teaser. Um, if any of you guys have used the JQ command, uh, it's a bash command. We use it in a lot of our uh, Docker images. Um, Scott Steinbeck has implemented a really sweet, pure cold fusion implementation of, uh, of the JQ, which uses a, a, a standard called JMES. Um, and it's basically a way you can filter and um, even like modify on the fly JSON documents. Uh, it's really sweet. And we're Scott and I, I mean, he's doing the work. I'm just supervising, right? Um, he's in the middle of, uh, of integrating that in a command box. So the next version of command box um, will have some like super cool, like built-in JSON stuff you can do against, you know, your server.json or your, your box.json. Or, and it's, it's a thousand times more powerful than I thought. I had seen JQ and thought it was like really simple. And Scott showed me the spec. It's like super powerful. And he's implemented all of it. He copied the unit test from one of the JavaScript frameworks, I think. Um, anyway, nice. but yeah, uh, that would be a really cool example of something like an API of a sense back JSON, where you could send the request and say, this is the, you know, the portions of the data that I want actually, you know, parsed and sent back. Anyway, there's your teaser. Hopefully that'll be implemented sometime soon. We can get some docs for it. Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, just to finish up what Ben was saying too, you know, public APIs are a use case, you know, make sure that they, they make match the use case. And he says, regret is a good thing. Cause that's when we learn, you know, you learn from things means we're evolving. So, you know, regret, you can, there's some positives in that. And then Charlie also mentioned that if you are having issues with the CF HTTP, uh, he's shared a link to uh Foundeo's bolt HTTP, which is pretty nice. And I'm just going to share the link for hyper, which is uh, Eric Peterson's, um, you know, little HTTP builder. It's, and it's it's nice. It builds on top of things. Um, yeah, I, I just had that... a, a comment in the chat about that. Hyper does use CFHTP under the hood. Yeah. So while it's way easier to use mm -hmm. than the CFHTP tag, it has some really sweet DSLs. It's not going to be any faster. I was going to um, say, maybe we should do a hyper version that builds on top of that bolt. HTTP. Well, actually, that conversation happened probably okay. a year or so ago where Pete, it was in Slack and CFML site. Pete Freitag had asked Eric about what would it look like to make the, the actual underlying HTTP engine pluggable. They had talked about it, and I don't recall if anybody had actually put code into it or if they just thrown the idea around. Because, yeah, that was exactly the idea was the sweet you know, uh, DSL of the hyper library and the ability to, you know, declare kind of like default 
connection and header information and just reuse it across multiple requests, which is insanely useful when you're, you know, interacting with an API, but be able to swap it out for something like Bolt. Um, I'd have to ask Eric to see if they actually attempted to do anything or if they just talked about it. Yeah, um, I mean, because that would be that would be pretty cool. Since, like I said, th there is some kind of micro optimizations you can get um, when you when you you know dip down into Java for stuff. If you're okay with losing, you know, certain functionality that CFHP does out of the box. Yeah, for sure. I thought that was pretty interesting. So very cool. So thanks for you guys in the chat for adding some extra value there. But I haven't seen Bolt, Bolt HTTP, so I'm going to have to look at that myself. But next up, we have a tweet from Brad Wood about um, making Command what? Box even better. So um, basically, Sounds like a trap. yeah, you talk about new Command Box conflict settings being influenced by environmental variables now. So you made a little. Um, did you? You didn't include my tweet about the server stuff, did you? All right. Um, so yeah, there's two tickets. Uh, yeah, well, I guess it shows up on your screen right there. I just replied to my original tweet. Yeah, there's uh, actually, did anybody even see my my reply? Nobody even liked it. I feel so lonely. I did. No, yeah, <laughs> I did. I did two tickets in command box that I've actually wanted to do for a long time, but I, I put them off because I was annoyed by the That's fact new. that. Uh, oh, wow. Someone just favorited my tweet. Um, no, I, I put off both these tickets because I was annoyed by the fact that it would it would be limited in, in Unix environments. Because um, in Windows, you can create environment variables that have any characters you want in the name. And uh, in, in Linux, you're, you're restricted to only letters, numbers, and underscores, which is kind of lame, but whatever. Anyway, the, the enhancements to command box are that you can now, in the bleeding edge version of command box, you can override any config setting in command box and any server start setting. These are two separate features. Um, so config settings are like, you know, um, is an, an interactive terminal? What's your ForgeBox API key? You know, uh, how do you want, you know, I don't know. There's all kinds of config settings. None of them, I can't think of any of them at the time. Oh, proxy settings is one. Uh, and server settings is anything you can put in a server.json file. So, you know, your host, default port, um, you know, security profiles, all that stuff. You can now set environment variables by convention. So box underscore config underscore name of config setting or box underscore server underscore name of server setting. And then when you run command box, it will automatically just pick those up, uh, slurp them in and use them. So now for a CI environment, if you want to run command box and have it have access to your uh, ForgeBox API token, you can simply set box underscore config underscore endpoints underscore ForgeBox underscore API token, sorry, it's a little long, equals your API token. And it's all done by convention, right? So it's just, that just follows the nested structs in the actual config. And then you run your Forge, your box ForgeBox publish, and it just automatically sees that environment variable and imports it and it gets used as a config setting. So anyway, I'm actually kind of excited about that. I We've had several use cases for it in our own builds and our client builds. Um, and in, uh, I'll have the docs written for it soon. I'm hoping to release the next version of command box as soon as I get Scott's um, JMES uh, JQ stuff merged in that we've been working on. Cool. But that that's a pretty fun feature to play with. Cool. Um, speaking of HTTP, we also had another blog post where James Moberg posted some CFML unit tests for CHATP and bad SSL. Um, so basically connecting to badssl.com 
and it's used for like manual testing of UI and your web clients, etc. So I was wondering if with the Bolt stuff, uh, Bolt HTTP would work and actually show several of these invalid SSL certificates as valid because, um, you know, HTTP doesn't work the same as a Chromium does. So I was curious. So anyway, if you're wanting to test that out, uh, we'll test out your version. Um, you can get this little gist here, basically your SSL test, your running test box. Uh, you can try use some of these. So that's like, it's pretty interesting. So I wonder, yeah, I wonder how if Bolt, AT, Bolt HTTP uh, has better uh, SSL identification than than ColdFusion, because that's a lot of time an issue with some of the CF engines. If you don't have the right certificate, it can all mess up. I would so. expect Bolt to have the, the same certificate behaviors as CFHTP. I'm just going to fall back on uh, Lucy's or the JVM's uh, CA search or whatever it's called, the, the key store. Yeah, but Lucy does auto load some of them, right? Some it sells. What do you mean load. by auto load? So it'll actually, if it'll try and download and install them for you, or do you have to have a set of flags? Well, that's that, 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 that's a separate feature, okay. right? So Lucy has its own is it CA search, CA store, whatever the certificate authority. It has its own key store built into it, which Adobe Confusion doesn't do this, and it's sort of annoying that Lucy does it, but um, it has a, it's its own search store. Right, um, that it, you know, it looks to see if a if a SSL cert is um, is valid. So if you have a self signed cert, you can import it into there, and Lucy will not complain, or Java won't complain. What Lucy does have, which Adobe doesn't have, which is partially why it has its own key store, is it has an SSL cert install. Uh, is that what it's called? Um, sorry, let's look at use tab complete on my um, yeah SSL certificate install and SSL certificate list built-in functions um, in Lucy. And so you can ask Lucy to go, you can say this website.com on this port, go grab whatever the heck cert it's using, download it and just automatically install it into your local key store. And then it'll automatically be valid. Now there's a lot of reasons why you probably shouldn't do that um, out of the box. But um, anyway. And it's I'm disabled seeing, on Lucy 6 according to Zach. Um, I don't know, okay. I know that there was conversations about that recently. I'm surprised if they were going to disable that by default because now I'm curious how SSL certificate install would work in Lucy 6. What I would like to see Lucy do is what Joe Gooch had suggested like 18,000 years ago and was ignored back in the day, which also ticked me off, um, was uh, setting up Lucy such that it would look in the key store that it has internally. And if it doesn't find a cert there, it falls back on the JVM's key store. Because uh, the problem is people would update the version of, of uh, Java, but they would be on an old version of Lucy and they wouldn't be able to, you know, hit newer domains or domains using newer SSL certs that had a new, uh, you know, root cert uh, certificate authority, um, which which caused a lot of problems. Anyway, and I'll have to check and see what, um, what uh, Lucy 6 does by default. I know they had talked about adding a setting, but I didn't know it was going to be the default behavior. So it should be interesting. Cool, cool. Well, that wraps up our blogs, tweets, and videos of the week. So let's jump into find a job. So get CFML jobs. There's a couple of new jobs out there for you guys. So I'll share my screen for those watching. So we have a ColdFusion developer in Albany, New York. And we have a senior software engineer, ColdFusion, in Chennai, uh, in India. So a couple of new jobs there and quite a few in, in late March as well. So if you guys are looking for a job, 
getcfmljobs.com. And if you'd like to post one, you can post one there for free as well. So uh, they do have a Twitter account if you want to follow that. And that's usually how we see most of them pop up on there. So uh, a couple of new jobs this week. So if you're looking, that's the first place I would go. They, they pull it in from all the major um, job sites. So they usually have everything you need right there. Okay. So they've got a few more comments in here. You want to summarize that, Brad, or are you looking up something else? Looks like... Uh, I'm replying to them, but there's several conversations happening. Okay. So you just talk about the JVM and the certs and how they run. So Charlie basically summarized what I had said. Um, cool. Zach was pointing out that Fiddler apparently works um, better with the, the, the change in the, the certificate store in Lucy 6. Okay. Very good. When is Lucy 6 coming out? Have they got a more definite timeline on that yet? <laughs> I'd like to know when Lucy 5.3.8 is coming out, Gavin. It's been a release candidate for about 18 moons now. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I, I would like to see that get out the door before we think about Lucy 6. Um, I don't know that there's any date whatsoever attached to Lucy 6. Zach can chime in if he knows differently, but I was just asking Zach yesterday when the flipping heck we would ever see Lucy 5.3.8, and he didn't know the answer to that one either. So, so it's up to Misha. So I guess it, we'll find out when it, it comes out. It comes out when it comes out. Um, th there has been a uh, a steady trickle of um, snapshot builds for 5.3.8 coming out. Um, I know this because every time we publish a new snapshot build to Forgebox, um, it gets automatically posted in one of our um, uh, internal order Slack channels. So, I mean, the last one was uh, snapshot build 163. And that was on March 29th. Um, but yeah, I really don't know if there's, I don't know if there's like a list of, of tickets that Misha's still working on for 538 or what. I mean, in theory, once to hit release candidate, nothing else should have been added to it. It should have just been fixed and any regressions. But um, there was also Lucy 537 snapshot builds that came out last week for completely unknown reasons. I, as far as I know, an additional 537 release isn't planned. So I'm not sure why codes being committed there but sometimes it's just a mystery gavin okay. it just it just happens wait and see get, we'll let you know you just get you just know. get to be a part of it okay so next up we have our forge box module of the week and this one we're going to be talking about content box 5 beta so this is the free and forever free professional open source content <coughs> management system by audis based on Coldbox mvc of course and if you're wanting to give that a test run we have content box at be at bleeding edge that you can store from command box and that'll give you content box 5 which has the the multi-site and uh, all the all the new goodness that we've been working on if you just install content box um without the at be you get the traditional version so if you go to content box on forge box there are a couple of different um ways to install this though so depending if you want the module or if you want the site itself so there's a couple of different ways if you just want the module you can install it into an existing app but otherwise you should you install content box dash site so at be to get the the new version cold box uh, sorry content box five so uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming out in that so uh, we're in beta right now, so if you'd like to give it a try, let us know if there's anything we need to get fixed before we try and cut that. 
Um, there's been a lot of UI updates, a lot of work going into the multi-site. Uh, we're actually having a webinar later this month uh, from Luis on building apps on ContentBox. So um, that's a great way to, to get an idea of what's been done. I'm sure he'll talk about all the changes he's made there. So ContentBox 5 now in beta. And that is your module of the week from ForgeBox. Okay, so next up we have a VS Code hint, tip, and trick of the week. And this one might actually be nice. Uh, it's called Terminal. So you're probably thinking, why do I need Terminal? Doesn't VS Code already have a Terminal built in? And that's why a lot of people like it. Yes, it does. But what this one does, it gives you a few extra features to make your life even easier. And one of them is to be able to basically click on text that's in maybe a readme doc or whatnot, and actually basically run that text command straight into a, a terminal for you. So if you have commands, you can just select the text, you know, in the, the readme file. Uh, and I think it's, I forget the shortcut already, dang it. Um, but there's a, some, you know, some shortcuts where you can use the command palette and basically run it there. So you can uh, run all the commands in the text editor, run selected commands. You can stop running commands. You view them in the output window. Um, and basically another cool thing is you can easily open a, a terminal window in your current files directory. So a lot of times when you, you know, start up terminal, it's at the root of your project or whatnot. And if you have multiple projects, you need to make sure you start the, the terminal in the right place. So that's pretty easy, uh, easy way to do that. And so basically just added a few extra features to make working with a terminal and VS code even easier. So that one there is a, a pretty cool little module. Um, so that is terminal, as I said. And then uh, we'll put the show link in the show notes for that one there. And yeah, so that's our VS code hint tip and trick of the week. So that leads us to the last thing, our Patreon supporters. Patreon supporters, yay. Yep, without them, we wouldn't be able to do this show, that is for sure. So uh, one of the, the perks that every Patreon supporter gets now is they get a few perks at our online community, the Autos community. And so you'll actually get uh, a special little private forum access on the community site, so only Patreon supporters are in there, uh, and the Autos team, so you can actually ask us questions, of course. It'll be pretty boring just to have a membership without <laughs> us but you also get a special little profile badge on the community website too so um, that's one of the perks and now if you are a bronze package or up you now get some free subscriptions from orders too well i guess not free it gets included with your payment <laughs> <laughs> your bronze included, package included subscription no yeah. additional charge so you get a special a forge... deal for you today only yep you get a forgebox pro account and you also get a cfcast account so you can Get all of our great CFcast paid content included, and you also have a Forgebox Pro account. So that's for those who are bronze package and up. And if you go to patreon.com slash autosolutions, you can see, see our different membership options here as well. So, so basically bronze supporter is $50 per month, and you get a couple of paid subscriptions included with that. So it's a pretty good deal. So I think it's my turn to read all the all the lovely names of all those great people supporting us. So. Go for it. I won't rob you of the pleasure of doing that. So thank you very much, Don Bellamy, Eric Hoffman, David Bellinger, Gary Knight, Giancarlo Gomez, Jonathan Perret, Mario Rodriguez, Jeffrey McGee from Sunstar Media, John Wilson from Synaptrix, Yogesh Mithur, 
Joseph Lamery, Ben Adel, Brett DeLine, Calvin Stanton, Charlie Earhart, Dan Card, Daniel Garcia, Diaz Lesnicki, Edgardo Cabezas, Jan Yannick, Jason Diger, Jeff McLean, Jeremy Adams, Joseph Erickson, Jordan Clark, Kai Koenig, Lexma Tanahari, Leon Ceramalis, Matthew Darby, Matthew Clemente, Mingo Hagen, Patrick Flynn, Ross Phillips, Scott Steinbeck, Stephanie Mungie, and Stephen Klotz. So thank you, all of you. Uh, your support is definitely welcomed, appreciated, and uh, we thank all of you. Without you, this podcast and a lot of our other tools would not be possible. So we thank you for your support. Again, if you'd like to see that list, you can go to autosolutions.com slash about dash us slash sponsors and some of them even have pretty pictures so you can see what they look like so but <laughs> there's some good stuff right. coming into for release candidate two very soon apparently for lucy six according to zach but uh yeah a lot of good stuff this week and i guess we'll see you all guys all next week thanks very much for tuning in everybody bye guys have a good one Show notes for this episode can be found at cfmlnews.modernizeordie.io, where you can also subscribe to your favorite podcast player like Spotify or iTunes. We also have the link to YouTube to find more videos just like this. The music used in this podcast is under a royalty-free license from Sound.com and Blue Tree Audio.